Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We are delighted and excited to be with you again this week, and we're happy to study these scriptures in the Old Testament with you. We are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we are delighted to have another guest with us today who is McKay Christensen. And McKay, in his professional career, has served as Managing Director of External Relations at BYU, Management Strategy Instructor at the BYU Marriott School of Business, President of a large global consumer products company, and leadership roles with Fortune 500 companies. McKay has also served as an adjunct professor at Xavier University and Idaho State University, and he has an MBA and a PhD in education. So welcome, McKay. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you, Scott and Maureen. I'll tell you that for me, this is quite a, a privilege because my family and I are dedicated weekly listeners to your podcast. I learn every week from you, and I want to thank you uh, for your insights and your commitment. This takes a lot of time, and you're sharing so much with so many people. So thank you for all you do on this podcast. Well, and McKay, you know what you're saying because you do a podcast called Open Your Eyes, and it is you've done about 60 of them now, and I know you know what it takes to put these things together. It's a major responsibility. And we have to say, too, that McKay's wife, Jennifer, is our Ward Relief Society president, and we love her and we love McKay. So that's exciting. Now, we're in 2 Kings chapter 2 through 7 this week, but as we look in chapter 2, there's this amazing scene that I've always loved. Elisha and Elijah are going together, and they come to the River Jordan, and Elijah takes out his mantle, and he smites the waters there, and the, they part hither and thither, as it says in the scriptures, and they go across the Jordan River on dry ground. And this is a type. It just seems to be this constant reminder that God is with them, that they are again, going through this same process that they saw as they came out of Egypt. And they're going across to the other side. They're going from west to east. And as they get to the other side, uh, Elijah is going to leave Elisha. And Elisha is very concerned about this because Elijah has been this mighty prophet. He's the one that was up on Mount Carmel that, that battled the, uh, the battle of the gods, if you will, on the top of Mount Carmel. And of course, the God of Israel showed his power and all the wicked priests of Baal were killed. And it was quite a scene and many other things, of course. But now the mantle is going to go from Elijah to Elisha. And as Elijah is taken up in a chariot of fire, and we're in verse 11 of Second Kings 2, there's this chariot of fire and horses of fire and Elijah parts in a whirlwind into heaven. And when Elisha saw it, he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And the mantle then fell upon Elisha. And I think that was a hard moment for Elisha. But then he goes back to the river and he touches the river with that mantle and the waters again part, and he goes across on dry ground. But there is something in this that we need to pay attention to about this mantle. Yeah, McKay, what's, what's so important about a mantle? Well, I, I wonder if a mantle uh, 
is literal, meaning is a mantle, does the mantle literally fall on a prophet or on someone who receives a calling? I will tell you, I think so. I think a mantle is, is more than just, hey, I was called. A mantle is a spiritual manifestation that this person is to serve for a season in this calling. You know, shortly after President Hinckley's death, Bruce Hafen said of him, he made it easy to follow the prophet. And I feel the same about Russell M. Nelson. I just, I know he's called of God. I've, I've felt personally and seen the mantle settle on him. I think he's mindful of us in a, in a new way because of that mantle. And I love his temperament. I value his insights because he's, of course, smart and capable, but he seeks to know the will of God, and I trust in that mantle. And I think that's what we've got to do. We've got to trust in the mantle because there's something that happens, I think, when you decide to follow and trust the mantle. I think miracles start to happen in your life. And I think that's what we saw with Elisha is once the mantle settled and people started to trust in that mantle, we're going to see and read of the miracles that started to happen because of it. And I especially saw this in studying the history of the church, that amazing day, August the 8th of 1844, when Brigham Young got up and there were others there who were kind of tendering for the the mantle, if you will, of the presidency of the church. And there was Sidney Rigdon who gave a fiery long speech and William Smith was there and and there were others who were concerned about where the leadership of the church would go. And as Brigham Young stood up and gave a simple talk, the mantle fell upon him. In fact, it came in such a marvelous way because he actually had the voice of Joseph Smith. And some people even said he looked like the prophet Joseph Smith. But we have over a hundred journal accounts. Now, in a, as a historian, we look for at least two or three accounts to give us veracity of an event. We have 105 accounts that we've found so far of this event, and people describe it in marvelous ways. They saw the mantle fall upon Brigham Young, and that was a, an incredible experience. When I was a young man, um, I was excited to go to priesthood conference for the first time when I was ordained a deacon. And uh, I got to go to the old tabernacle. And beforehand, I kept saying to myself, I wonder if I, how I will feel when I see the prophet in person for the first time. And I remember we sat on the balcony overlooking right above the, right above the podium area. And as priesthood conference uh, was about to start, President Kimball and the other brethren walked on to the podium platform there in the tabernacle. And I remember seeing President Kimball, and I remember the spirit telling me that he was a prophet. I knew from that point forward that he had the mantle. And I think that's available to all of us to know that we have a prophet that we can follow and to trust in the mantle. And Maureen and McKay, I just have to say one more thing about this mantle. It was very poignant for us all back, those of us who were alive then, but back in December of 1973, President Harold B. Lee, everyone thought he was going to be the prophet for a long time because 
He was born in 1899 on March the 28th, and he was uh, he was young and vibrant. It seemed like in those days, and and on Christmas Day of 73, he celebrated Christmas with his family, and everything was going well. But on the 26th of December, all of a sudden he became very ill, and he was taken to the hospital, and he became unconscious, and. It was quite a scene because President Kimball, who was the next senior apostle, and he was the president of the Twelve, and he was there with President Mary and G. Romney, and they were there by the bedside of President Lee, and he was not conscious, and they were watching the monitors, and President Tanner was out of town, and, and so at one moment, President Kimball said to President Romney, what shall we do? And President Romney said, we just have to watch and pray. And it wasn't very long before the monitors went flat, the heartbeat went flat, and President Lee had passed away. And at that moment, President Romney turned to President Kimball and said, President Kimball, what shall we do? Because the mantle had changed with that last heartbeat of President Lee, the mantle had fallen upon Spencer W. Kimball. And I've never forgotten that scene. It's such a powerful scene of how the mantle is passed in our dispensation. And I think it's interesting that the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. The priesthood is the guiding power. And so we do feel that mantle. And so my question is, um, do we also speak of the, a mantle falling on people with other callings? We hear about a bishop having a mantle, and I remember a friend of ours who was released as bishop who said he felt the mantle lifting from him when he was released, and it was a, a totally different feeling. There was something in the mantle that he had carried that made him love his ward members ever more than he could even imagine and and be in tune for their needs and that so that mantle is just a real and powerful thing but do we feel that in other callings without question uh years ago uh i had a ministering brother who came to visit my family and i had just read the very talk that you referenced that elder packer had given years ago called the mantle is far greater than the intellect and in that he tells us to trust in the mantle and when my ministering brother came over his home teacher at that time he sat down and he started to give us a lesson and he turned to me and he said mckay i want to teach you how to pray now i had been in the church for over 35 years i knew thought i knew how to pray but brother neil went on to teach me that He's, throughout his day, when he had a thought of something that he needed to communicate to the Lord about, he would write it down. And throughout the day, he would collect his thoughts so that when he kneeled down in the evening to give his evening prayers, he had notes to refer to if needs be, but he had a collection of thoughts. And he said, my prayers became so much more meaningful when I did that. And I took Brother Neil's lesson to heart and applied that in my own life, and he was right. I needed to learn how to pray. It was his mantle, it was his calling that I needed to trust in, that this minister, this home teacher, could give me something that could bless my life. And when we trust in the mantle, whether it's our home teacher, our ministering sister, our ministering brother, our bishop, our elders quorum president, our Relief Society president, 
when we trust that they have the mantle, the inspiration to help us in our life to live better and be happy, our lives change. I love that example, and I, it reminds me, uh, we have a very dear friend who was our home teacher for many years in Virginia, and uh, he talked to me often, his name is Clint Todd, and he talked to me often about, I feel the mantle of my responsibility of being your home teacher, or now it would be called your ministering brother, and we have gone to lunch every year. Our birthdays are about six months apart, and so we take each other to lunch on our birthdays or around our birthdays, and uh, he knows every person in our family, every one of them, and all their names, and about their children, and about their situations, and about everything, and when we sit down to lunch, it's like we have a personal priesthood interview, and he, he says sometimes, I still feel the mantle of being your home teacher, or your ministering brother, or he calls me his big brother because he's a little older than me. And I appreciate that because I feel that, and he has blessed my life now for 20 plus years. And that is a great blessing in my life. You know, what occurs to me, Scott, as you share that, that we also need to trust in the mantle when we are to wear the mantle. And sometimes we don't think we are qualified or Maybe we can't live up or do as well as we ought to or should. But even Elisha, in verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 2, prayed for a double portion of the Spirit. Even he knew he needed help. He needed the mantle in order to do that calling the way it should be done. So I think when we trust in the mantle, when we're called as a ministering brother or sister or as an elders quorum president or whatever that may be, we need to trust that the Lord has called us and just seek to do his will and trust in the inspiration and the spirit that comes to us as we go about doing that calling. And it reminds me how important it is that we accept wholeheartedly when a mantle is passed to someone. Like we may be in love with a particular prophet and he passes away and you think, oh, but he is my prophet. And then the mantle goes to someone else. And if we will be open, we'll understand that, yes, that mantle is passed on and I can have the same sort of loyalty to the new prophet that I did to the old one. And I think we see some of that challenge for Elisha here as he's beginning to take on this role. And I think we feel for him because he was so close to Elijah. And when he calls him my father, it just reminds us how, how very intimate these relationships are between those who serve us. But um, remember the children from Bethel, I'll read the scripture, it's in verse 23, and he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going, this is talking about Elijah, up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him. They were mocking Elisha and said unto him, go up thou bald head, go up thou bald head. So they are mocking the prophet. And um, what is it that we are to learn from, from this very telling scripture about those who would um, mock a prophet? Well, Maureen, no matter what our position, there is always going to be ignorant critics. And it seems in our day, for some, it may seem popular to criticize the leaders of our church. 
you know, you can always count on a news article or a social media post to tear down or criticize. Sometimes even the most well-intended or inspired words, it's, the criticism is going to happen. And I think here's the question. The question is, do we join them? Even in small ways, you know, Elder Packer was speaking about Lehi's dream of the tree of life. And he said, you may think that Lehi's dream has no special meaning for you, but it does. He said, you are in it. All of us are in it. And he went on to say one word in this dream or vision should have special meaning to you and the young people in our church today. And that word is after because it was after the people had found the tree that they became ashamed because of the mockery of the world, they fell away. You know, the mockery of the world has power. So I think the lesson may be, stay as far away from it as possible. Mockery has an erosive power that slowly undermines even the best of us. And the interesting thing for me is, as erosive as criticism is, the opposite is also true of faith. Faith-filled comments build on themselves and add brightness and hope, and criticism does exactly the opposite. It's interesting to look in the Book of Mormon and see how the word foolish, like in Korahor, Korahor calls the believers foolish, and, you know, he's mocking them. And so that is one of the, the keys that the adversary uses to make us feel small and unworthy and 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 that we shouldn't follow the prophet, we should follow the ways of the world. Even in Lehi's dream, they're mocking from the great and spacious building those who are making their way to the tree of life. So it's a powerful thing to be mocked, and sometimes it becomes very popular to criticize the prophet and the, the prophets, the brethren, uh, as if they are old men who could lead us astray because they don't really understand our times or something. And I I just want to weep when I hear that because they are, in fact, the last safe place. With all the voices we have out there that are claiming that they are truth or claiming that there is no truth, um, that would knock the foundations, the very foundations of, of people's souls, and you can see it happening all around us. We have this steady voice from the prophets that we can trust. And if we'll trust and not reserve and say, well, I'll trust this part because it pleases me and not this part because I have questions. If we'll just wholeheartedly say, you have the mantle and I trust that, we can just be so much more at peace in our lives. And I'm so glad, Maureen and McKay, that years ago when we set up the guidelines and standards for Meridian magazine before we even went online that uh, we one of the things that we said is that we would never ever criticize the prophet or stand on a different side as, than the prophet and we've never strayed from that and we really didn't know where Meridian was going to go we didn't know that over time we would speak to millions of people every year and uh, we're so grateful that that is what we've chosen because there is some power in this there is something that comes to your hearts when you stay that course that you are absolutely absolutely on the side of the prophet and his thinking and his in his teachings and his revelations and not just the prophet not just president russell m nelson currently but all of the living prophets and apostles that we sustain as prophets seers and revelators
I'm quite a fan of Dwayne Boyce's work on talking about the prophets, and he wrote this in an article on Meridian. He said, There is a vast difference that exists between our perspectives and those of God. God perceives not only every thought and intent of every person's heart, but also foresees the eternal consequences of every person's choices, and not only the consequences of such choices for themselves, but also for all others who are affected by them. Here is a being of perfect holiness. He has no moral flaws, no selfish motivations. He wants only what is right and pure, and his love for us is perfect and unending. Not incidentally, his divine purpose is to help each of us become as he is. And then he said, It's hard to imagine how mortals could be less like God in these respects. Our natural condition limits our perspectives, subjects us to constant battle with our selfish impulses, taints our love, and bends our purposes toward destructive ends. We are perfect at nothing. And so the Lord has sent us prophets to help us because we live in such a small, confined self, and we wouldn't be able to know the truth so clearly if we didn't have prophets. So, of course, we want to follow them as truly the last safe place, as the place we can turn when all else is unsure and uncertain. It's such a great comment, Maureen. You know, the Japanese have a saying, it goes like this, a frog in a well cannot conceive of the ocean. And what you're saying is prophets have a view that we don't have. They can see what we don't see. They see the end from the beginning. And when we trust in the mantle, we gain a vision, a view that we otherwise wouldn't have in our own life. And you see these youth in Bethel calling him bald man, bald man, and then you watch and see the miracles that follow Elisha, and you understand how poor and limited these, these children are who, who dared to mock Elisha. I also love Elisha's mission because sometimes we don't have very much, well, in fact, all the time, we don't have a very large record of any of these prophets. And so as far as Elisha's teachings, we don't have a huge record of them. But each of the prophets of the Old Testament are a type of the coming Messiah. Some part of their ministry is a type of the coming of Christ. And this particular prophet that we're talking about this week, Elisha, he performs some interesting miracles, including raising a child from the dead, feeding a multitude with a small quantity of food. Does that sound familiar in the Savior's ministry? Healing a leper, of course. And so we have some miracles in his ministry that really point us to the Savior so that when, when we see the Savior's ministry, we can look back and say, well, Elisha was a prophet. And when we see Elisha's ministry, we look forward and say, he is the Messiah. So they, they tie together in a wonderful way that helps strengthen our testimony and our witness of them. I love the story of the woman who made room for Elisha in her home. She knew that he came by her home and was traveling in that area periodically, and so she made a special place for him to come and rest when he was in her area. And I, I love that symbol of making room for the prophet in your home. How does that make you feel, or what does that make you think about? Well, I love the words that was used. She, she makes a bed, a table, a stool, and a candlestick, a little chamber 
for the prophet, and I agree with uh, Scott, also Elisha's a type of Christ. And it's interesting that they describe it in that way, that there was a thought, there was, there was structure, there were, there were elements in her house that were set aside for the prophet and for Christ in her life. And the same for us. Each day do we create a structure thoughtfully, thoughtfully with a bed and a table and a stool, so to speak, so that each and every day we've made room for Christ or the prophet in our life. You know, um, I can imagine, as the scripture says, that each day she saw the prophet Elisha crossing back and forth in front of her home. And at first she put out some food and then she made more room for her in her life. And I think that happens to us. I think that Christ traverses in front of us each day. The prophet and his words are available in front of us each day if we will just invite them in. What is, what is Revelation 3.20, I think, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him. And that's what happens when we make room for the prophet, for Jesus Christ in our life. So how do we do that? I love that idea of the structure that you just described. How do we do that in our own lives? Because they are, first of all, one of the adversary's key tricks is distraction. We are so distracted with triviality that means nothing but feels urgent at the time. And we are uh, um, exhausted by our own secular society in so many ways. So how do we make room for the Lord in our lives and his prophets in our lives in a very intentional way as you're describing? I, my, I've heard the saying that says, if you don't run your day, your day will run you. And I think that's true. If we don't frame our day so that the spiritual things in life are the references that we use and what we think about, then um, the, the, word will just, the world will just take us. President Nelson recently said, the voices and pressures of the world are engaging and numerous, but too many voices are deceptive, seductive, and can pull us off the covenant path. To avoid the inevitable heartbreak that follows, I plead with you today to counter the lure of the world by making time for the Lord in your life each and every day. And that includes scripture study. Here's the candles, here's the stool, the candlestick, the table. That includes scripture study, prayer, pondering, and adopting the patterns that you read about to become the patterns in your life. You know, I love puzzles. I don't know if you like puzzles, but I like to put together a puzzle now and then to take a mental break from life. And I can't imagine doing a puzzle without a picture on the box to, to be my reference. And that's what reading the scriptures and pondering in prayer does. It gives you a vision of what you're trying to assemble in life. And then second, when I put together a puzzle, I don't know about you, but I find all the straight pieces and I create the outer edges of the puzzle first. It gives me a reference. And when we frame our life in spiritual ways with a spiritual view, you know, our filing system of how we think and how we make sense of the world becomes a spiritual filing system, spiritual frame. Now we order our life after Christ's word. And this starts to establish a rhythm, study, ponder, pray, and pattern your life after him. 
And what I found is when we do that, the pieces in our life fall together, come together just like they should, like, like, like we hope that they will when our pattern for our life is that way. I have a friend who deals with a lot of chronic pain in her life that is really quite debilitating. And she said that she has created a, a mantra of things she says to herself when she's in a great deal of pain, scriptural things, encouraging, hopeful things, because she says she wants in all circumstances to be a friend of the Lord. And I think how great it is to even find ways to structure your thinking and your life so that no matter how difficult times are, you are there steady with God and not turning and whining and feeling sorry for yourself and thinking he hasn't attended to you. So it seems like we create these structures, these intentional ideas that keep us close to him no matter what other very sometimes very hard distractions like pain and sorrow might keep us from him. He is the very place we need to turn in those times. But it was an intentional choice on her part. And so I love that idea of being intentional. The stool, the table, the candlestick. These are very exciting to me. These daily holy habits, they really do make room for the Lord. I want to turn just for a minute, if we can turn to Second Kings chapter 5. Uh, the very first verse we go to a different story, but we mentioned this, that Elisha healed a leper. And I just want to look at this because in this very first verse, now Naaman, and you all know this already, but now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, there's already a big title, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor. So all these things are describing Naaman. And then the very last five words, but he was a leper. Now, you have to know that in that society, leprosy was the worst possible cursing. Uh, in some societies, even in our time today, there are uh, various castes or various levels of acceptance of people. and. In one society that we're familiar with, there are the untouchables. And those who have leprosy are below the untouchables. They are the lowest of the low. They are shunned by society. They are cast out. They are, they are thought to be smitten of God. They're so, they're so repulsive to people. And people didn't understand leprosy. Um, we've worked with our dear friend Becky Douglas in India with the leprosy affected. And um, these are tender, dear, amazing, wonderful, precious sons and daughters of God. And they have this horrible disease. And yes, you can touch them. And we have been with them. And it's one of the most humbling things that we've ever done in our lives has worked with them. So Naaman, this is in verse 9, came with his horses and with his chariot. seems like horses and chariots play a big role in Elisha's life in very many scenes, like Elijah being taken up, and we'll talk about another one in a few minutes. But Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, because he knew what he wanted. He wanted to be healed of this leprosy. 
He said, go, this is on a note, mind you, he didn't even come out. Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. And Naaman, he was wroth, and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. And then he even mentions other rivers in uh, Damascus better than all. Aren't these rivers, Abana and Farpar, are they not better than all the waters of Israel? Jordan is kind of a, a pokey river. May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. What a way to treat a prophet. <laughs> I love then what the servant says. My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean? So the question is, why wouldn't Naaman do that simple thing? And I think the answer is, we all have simple things that we somehow refuse to do. We don't realize always that we're refusing to do it, but we're. the Lord asks us to do some very simple things, and we have better ideas. We turn around and seek to advise him instead about how to do it, and yet there we still are in our leprosy and unable to heal ourselves, but we don't want to do what the Lord asks, which is sometimes so very simple. It's the same story as the children of Israel not looking at the brazen serpent because it was too simple of a task. Why, why doesn't the Lord ask us to do something major? Because these snakes are really, they're, they're fiery fl flying serpents, and they're much more than just looking at a brazen serpent up there before us. It's too simple. We need something more complicated, more, you know, tasking. And, and no, the same thing here. And then Naaman finally humbled himself, and he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What an amazing, beautiful story that has all kinds of application for us. You know, one of the tests that come our way in life, I think, is the get over it test. Uh, sometimes we get off track in life because of sin or mistake or circumstances. And we tend in those situations to take personally uh, the potential offenses that may come our way from other people or from your Relief Society president or Elders Quorum president. And here's a simple truth. If we're trying to find peace and we're trying to, to find our way in life or even do something remarkable, um, Offenses will likely come our way, and too many of us get sidetracked to become of them. But when we do like Naaman did, get over it. Uh, follow the small and simple things that are before us. Follow the small pieces of inspiration that come our way. Listen to a friend or a bishop or your morning study, what you're inspired to do in your morning study. Sure enough, just like Naaman learned, that simple obedience is where you will find peace and cleanliness and happiness. I love that comment because I think too many of us have a case going against the Lord or against someone else about what they didn't do that we needed them to do to serve us just right, what they did to ignore us when we needed their help, what they said to us that made us feel small when we needed to feel better. And I love that get over it principle because that can become the story of your life. 
I was offended. I was hurt. I was overlooked. I could have been a contender, Marlon Brando said in the old movie On the Waterfront. I could have been a contender if it wasn't for you, if you hadn't gotten in my way. And I love that get over it principle and do the simple thing because the Lord does reside in the simple things. We were in the temple this morning doing some ceilings and what a glorious, sweet experience that was. And I felt the spirit so keenly and I thought, why am I looking for something else than what I've got right here when I can come to the temple? What is it that I want that I already don't have as a as a member of the covenant, as someone who has partaken of this great gift. So I love that idea that we should get over it, get over our the stories that we tell ourselves that make us think that somehow the Lord hasn't served us as we should be served, that we're too important to do the tasks we've been given to do, and get over it. Well, McKay, I have to say, too, that it reminded me of so many times uh, people come to me, and this has gone on for years. I, I can remember this from 30, even 40 years ago, but especially in the last 20 years. Uh, somebody, and sometimes a number of people, will come to me before General Conference and say, th or ask this question, do you think the prophet will say anything important this time or something significant? You know, it's like they're looking for something really big. And I said, I always say, oh, I'm sure he will. And then they get to the end of conference and they kind of shake their heads like, I thought he was going to say something important. Now, these are people who are maybe not quite fully uh, visioned. They haven't been given the full vision or something. But it's amazing because there's not one conference that we don't hear something important. And sometimes, McKay and Maureen, sometimes these things are simple things. They're just like, I remember in the days of President Kimball, he said things like, uh, you need to clean up your lots and uh, plant a garden. And people were, this is a prophet of God and he's telling us to plant a garden? Or uh, they tell us simple things. And those simple things are what will bring the Spirit into our lives as we follow the counsel of the living prophets. It's like thinking, well, if I got called to walk to Jackson County, I'd be there. I'd do it. I'd be right there on that front wagon. But please don't ask me to um, minister to my sisters. The most powerful things that have come my way in life, yes, are from general conference and from some of those teachings that we hear from our prophets, but some of the most powerful things have been in elders' quorum. You know, sometimes elders' quorum seems a little boring, and you're not really sure that you really want to go and sit through another lesson. But when you go with the mindset of small and simple things will yield miracles in my life, and you're listening in elders quorum for the for the small thing that may help you with what you're seeking for the most part i have found that revelation happens in those regular mundane uh, meetings and and opportunities that we have in the church that is so true i can't tell you how many times that i've come away from that very setting you were just talking about from elders quorum or even from a small meeting i Right now, I work in temple and family history with Maureen. She's also teaching gospel doctrine, which I love. And, of course, McKay, we always loved your lessons as well. But just in the simple setting of our family history center, we sometimes bring the youth in there. 
and we'll talk to them for a few minutes. And what we do is we always have each one of them tell some story from their family history. And, you know, at first they're kind of on the spot. I say, well, surely you know something from your background, maybe your grandparents or your great-grandparents or an uncle or even your parents or something. And as soon as they start recounting some little story of faith or some little story of history, the spirit comes. And then the next one starts and the next one. And by the time we've gotten through nine of us or ten of us, we're all in tears and we're all feeling the spirit so strongly because this is part of our heritage and this is part of our faith and this is part of the simple things that absolutely bind us to the Lord God of Israel. Now, I think we can't not miss this wonderful chapter 6 because this is the time when Syria is warring against Israel and the king of Israel comes to Elisha to get information on where where they are and he is able to give them information because of his Syriac abilities. And so the king of Syria thinks there must be a spy among them and then he hears about Elisha. So he comes to encompass the city roundabout where Elisha is. And this is in Dothan. Scott, you and I have been in Dothan. It's, it's in uh, northern Israel. And so, therefore, this king of Syria sent thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. Now, that would be terrifying. I think that there is no question that if we were encompassed about by a, a great and very prepared and terrible army, we would wonder what to think of it. I'm in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes, meaning his servant's eyes, that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And what a moment. I have gone back to this moment in my heart and mind thousands of times in my life, because that comment, fear not, they that be with us are more than they that be with them, is something I think we all need to remember in a world where we do begin to understand that we need protection, that we're vulnerable, that there are times when it feels like many things are arrayed against us. They may be circumstances, they may be other kinds of difficulties that come to our life, they may be people that we feel threatened or worried uh, by, but the Lord knows how to protect his children. I think that is such a powerful idea. I love that comment, Maureen. You know, it's easy when a son or daughter loses their faith for a time or sickness comes into our life like a wrecking ball as it does or upheaval takes place in our life rather than peace to think, just like Elisha's servant thought, whatever shall we do? Just whatever shall we do? It's just, it's, it, it, there's no hope. But I've learned that God loves to bless and he will order and keep and protect in, in his due time, 
your family and the circumstances for those that love him. And I think it's extremely helpful in those times to picture in your mind this, this very scene uh, that they that were with Elijah and with the young servant were greater than those that they could see. Uh, you know, there's so many examples of this in church history. I wonder whether Lorenzo Snow or Joseph F. Smith or even recently Russell M. Nelson uh, thought of this when they said, you know, incredible things like temples will dot the earth. Can you imagine the audacity of that statement when Lorenzo Snow made it in 1899? Were his eyes open to something that we can't, couldn't have seen in 1899? Because now there are 282 temples in operation. And I expect in future years, that very prophecy will come true that temples will dot the earth. So prophets can see what we can't see. And we need to have faith that those that are with us are greater than those that are with them, so to speak. Sometimes I read the news and I'm overwhelmed by the philosophies of men that are breaking down some of the things that I hold most dearly. And I become sick with concern because it seems like they're catching on so widely and supported by media and entertainment and education and all the basic institutions of our society. And then I have to remember that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And that really is comforting in a world where we're watching such foreign ideas play out in our own land and know that the Lord and His truth will prevail. We leave with this comment from Jeffrey R. Holland. When disappointment and discouragement strike, and they will, you remember and never forget that if our eyes could be opened, we would see horses and chariots of fire as far as the eye can see, riding at reckless speed to come to our protection. We have delighted in being with you today. That's all that we have for today. We're grateful for McKay Christensen. And this is Scott and Maureen Proctor. As we end this podcast, we remind you that next week we'll be studying 2 Kings chapter 17 through 25 in a lesson entitled, He Trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Thanks as always to Paul Cardall for the wonderful music that accompanies this podcast. And we're grateful to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins. Have a great week and see you next time.